Good morning. Please, if you will, get out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew this, uh, chapter 1. We're going to continue our study of the book of Matthew. We started this last week, and if you weren't here, uh, that sermon is available on the website or on the podcast, and if you need help with that, uh, please let us know. But uh, last week we looked at the genealogy that was found in Matthew chapter 1, and we saw how uh, this genealogy reveals to us that the Messiah is here, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. Uh, He is the one whom all the prophets had foretold, and He has come, and He has fulfilled. He is fulfilling all of those things that God had promised to us in the Old Testament. As we open this, we saw very clearly that Matthew is, is writing this uh, letter, this, this book, to, as an account of Jesus' life with a very specific purpose in mind. That He wants to reveal to us uh, who Jesus is based on the Old Testament so that the Jews in the first century could understand and grasp the concept that the King is here. The King, the Messiah that was foretold has come. This morning we're going to continue our study of Matthew chapter 1 and looking specifically at Jesus' birth and His infancy and His childhood as, Jesus, as, as Matthew reveals it to us. A lot of times we, um, we hear about people going to this text around Christmas time thinking, yeah, this is what we do every Christmas. But really, this is more so a text that's intended to prove that Jesus is who the prophet said He would be rather than a really fun story uh, that, that we enjoy thinking about because, I mean, it is amazing. Uh, what, what we read in this text is as we understand what God has done and as all this is revealed to us, it is amazing. And we can understand why people want to celebrate what has happened here. Uh, but as we study it, as we go a little bit deeper, we start to understand that there's a lot more here than just a really good story that we enjoy hearing about. There's actually specific reasons behind everything that Matthew reveals to us in this section. So we're going to open up the Word this morning, and and we're going to move around a little bit uh, in the Old Testament. I hope that you're comfortable with that. Uh, If you're not, just listen along and and try to to keep up with what we're talking about. But uh, we're going to try to understand what Matthew is revealing to us and see what the message is that he has. For us uh, in the rest of chapter 1 and in Matthew chapter 2. As we look at this, the childhood of Jesus, we see certain events that Matthew calls out in his life. And as we, as we read this account, and if we were to read Luke's account, which is the other account that gives us the, the childhood of Jesus, we see differences between the two accounts. And we, we need to kind of ask ourselves why are these things chosen? In Matthew's account, why does he feel like this is important to reveal about Jesus and who he is? I like to briefly kind of survey through this story. We're common, we're we're aware of what's in this story, so just kind of move through the story. What was read to us at the scripture reading is the birth of Jesus, how uh, Mary was had conceived a child through the Holy Spirit, and Joseph was going to put Mary away for unfaithfulness. Until an angel comes to him and says that this child who has been conceived is from the Holy Spirit. And he says, you will name him Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. And so Joseph does not divorce Mary, who he's betrothed to. It's interesting, marriage, betrothal, they're pretty much the same thing. He's the husband, she's the wife, but they haven't come together in marriage. He, He does not put her away. He goes ahead and marries Mary. 
and, and, and they become husband and wife. And then the story, story skips ahead in chapter 2, and we see that wise men, or your translation might say magi, come from the east to worship Him who was born King of the Jews. They see a star in the sky, and they understand some way, somehow, this means that the Messiah has been born, and so they come to worship Him who has been born King of Jews. And when they come into Jerusalem, they meet Herod, who is the King of the Jews, Herod the Great, who built and beautified this temple, uh, who is a Jew, but also an Edomite, mixture of the two, an evil king. And he comes before him, they, the, the, the whole caravan of wise men come before him asking, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And, and Herod doesn't know, and he's troubled by this. And, and all the Jews see all that's going on, and they hear that they're looking for this Messiah, this king, and everyone's troubled by this and confused. And they say to the Magi, the wise men, that the prophets have told us he's to be born in Bethlehem. And so they go off to Bethlehem to find him who is born, king of the Jews, to offer him gifts and to worship him. Well, the star helps them find the house, they find the child, they worship, they offer the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh before him, and then they, they go off. They're not, they don't return to Herod, even though they're, they're asked to, because they're warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. It turns out that in this third section we see Herod tries to kill the child. He ends up having all the children under the age of two in Bethlehem put to death. But before he does that, an angel or a dream uh, occurs in Joseph's life. Joseph has a dream, and he understands that he is to flee to Egypt to escape from Herod slaughtering uh, the baby Jesus. And he's able to do that. And he stays in, in Egypt until Herod dies, and then he returns. But he doesn't go to Jerusalem. Instead, he goes to Nazareth. We know this story, right? As I'm, as I'm rehearsing this, you're probably getting ahead of me. You know what, what happens in this storyline. You know how this plays out. But is, Jesus, is, is Matthew just revealing to us a history lesson? Helping us understand the storyline of, of Jesus' birth and childhood. Well, Mark didn't think that was important. He completely skipped it. Uh, John has some interesting things to say about the creation of Jesus and Jesus coming to earth, to earth, but he doesn't really talk about this childhood period at all. And Luke brings up completely different events. So why is Matthew saying all of these things? Well, as we look at the text more closely, we notice five times there are prophecies in this text. Five times, in, in five different ways, he, he's bringing up prophecies to reveal something. Notice, in 122, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. In 2.5, for so it is written by the prophet. 2.15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 2.17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And 2.23, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. So as we saw in the genealogy, Matthew has this purpose of looking at the Old Testament and understanding how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So now we see Matthew is continuing this line of thinking and helping us understand how Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of the Old Testament using some prophecies that are helping to prove this truth. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Messiah. Well, 
we need to understand what these prophecies are about in order to make sense of what Matthew was intending as he's writing all these things. We need to know why he's bringing all this up and, and these specific prophecies. And, and one thing that we're going to notice as we study this is that most of these prophecies are not clear-cut prophecies. It's not uh, that the Messiah will come and he will do this, and then Jesus came and he did this. The Messiah will come and he will do this, Jesus came and he... That's, that's not the way these prophecies are laid out. As we go through these prophecies, we're going to see that a prophecy is given. And when we go back to the Old Testament, we don't usually think that's about a Messiah coming at all. But Matthew says it is. Uh, and this is the way that we find a lot of times Old Testament references are used in a way that whenever we go back into the Old Testament... Maybe we wouldn't have thought that was obviously referring to Jesus or referring to what God would do in the New Testament. But these writers have a bigger context in mind of that text. Whatever they're using, they have a bigger idea in mind than just that specific verse. And whenever we open up the prophets and we look not just to the verse that's mentioned in its immediate context, but outside of that, the whole context of the Scripture we find the greater meaning that they had in mind. You see, the Jews would have known their Old Testaments. That was their Bible. That was what they, they brought to services, or they, they, they worshipped weekly, learning about, listening to other people tell them about the Old Testament and studying and thinking about these things. So as, as one of these writers would just mention an Old Testament text, they would know it. They would remember that text, and they would know what the context was of those things being said, especially the prophets who spoke so much of this great hope that was being promised. Well, let's look at each of these five prophecies uh, a little bit closer this morning. First of all, you notice how the angel tells Joseph, uh, you will name him Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. Matthew then uh, has a commentary in verse 22 of chapter 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hmm, okay. So, so Matthew says that this was to fulfill a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We go back in the Old Testament, we see this was clearly stated in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So go ahead and get out your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 7 if you can, and look with me at this text, because... It's a fascinating text. All these are fascinating, but this one's fascinating because of the storyline that, it, that it's giving us. Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz, uh, the king of, of, of Judah, and he's telling him, don't be afraid of your enemies. There's uh, the northern kingdom in Syria, and they're, gonna, they're, they're, they're threatening to, to come in and conquer Jerusalem, Judah, and Isaiah says, don't be afraid of them. And, and God is with you, and you ask for a sign. God will give you a sign to reassure you that He's with you. And Ahaz says, I will not ask for a sign. I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah's like, dude, He's telling you to ask Him. This is not the same thing, but He doesn't ask Him. So Isaiah comes back and says, you're, you're wearying God in the way that you're acting. And verse 14, he says, Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread 
will be deserted. You see how it's this in the context is more so about Ahaz being promised that his enemies will be overcome and he will not be conquered by those enemies. And, and how is he going to know this? Well, a virgin, in some translations, might put a young maiden. It's a, a young lady will conceive and bear a son. It could be a virgin, could not be a virgin in this context. But notice the child's name, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God is with us. That's the message that God, that God wanted to tell uh, Jerusalem and Judea at that time, that He is with you. And whenever we continue, we don't ever see a child born whose name is literally Emmanuel. Okay? But the very next chapter, we see Isaiah having a child, Meher Shalom Hashbaz, in chapter 8. Uh, quick to the spoil, quick to the plunder, something like that. And, and his name is indicating that the plunder of those nations is going to come into Judah and Jerusalem, that those nations are going to be conquered um, because of this child who has been born. And interestingly enough, in chapter 8 and verse 8, uh, he talks about uh, the land belonging to a man named O. Emmanuel. Emmanuel is brought up again. So obviously, some way, somehow, this child of Isaiah is representing the fulfillment of the promise that was made by Isaiah just in the last chapter. Okay, So all of this seems to be getting fulfilled right here in Isaiah 7 and 8, and everything's good. But now Matthew looks at this text, and he sees that the Holy Spirit has conceived in Mary, in the womb of Mary, a child who is God, who is living on earth who will help his people overcome the enemies and protect them. And Matthew says, that was about Jesus. This was to, to fulfill what was spoken in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. If you go to Isaiah 9, you see, he says in verse 6, we looked at this last week, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see how the greater context helps us understand what Matthew is revealing to us. That yes, Jesus was God on the earth, and he did fulfill what Isaiah talked about. In fact, there are multiple places in the Old Testament where we see God coming and saying, I'm coming. I'm going to come to Jerusalem. The glory of the Lord will return. And, and we think uh, tabernacle, pillar of smoke, temple, pillar of smoke, glory of the Lord coming into the temple. But the New Testament reveals to us Jesus himself is God coming down to earth to live with us. And that's what Matthew starts out pointing us to the fact that God Himself has come down to earth. And He uses Isaiah to reinforce and to prove that Jesus is God, just as God foretold, coming down to earth to live with us. Well, the next section uh, is a little bit easier. You see that these men from the east come to worship the king and, and the Jews are troubled, but they say, well, He's got to be born in Bethlehem. Because that's what the prophets said. That's what was written in the prophet. So the Jews here obviously understood this one. This one's very clear cut. Uh, they're using Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. And this is kind of a summary of those verses. You go back to the book of Micah. <laughs> 
told you, I'm testing your, your Old Testament knowledge. So you got the major prophets, the minor prophets. Uh, you get to Hosea, uh, Obadiah, Jonah, and eventually, maybe we can get to the book of Micah. Okay? Um, Micah is an interesting book. It's another uh, contemporary of Isaiah, and he is writing also to the southern tribes. And one thing he's doing is he's constantly judging them and telling them about all the sins that they've done. A lot of these prophets have a lot of judgment. But one thing he says to the southern nation is in chapter 4, verse 9, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? The pain sees you like a woman in labor. One thing that Micah points out is you lost your king. Well, they hadn't lost their king. They had, at that time, the king Hezekiah, Ahaz. Those were kings that were from the leniency, the descendancy of David. So here he's, he's prophesying. He's saying, you're going to go into Babylonian captivity. He mentions Babylon in, in his book. And he says, you're crying as if there's no king in you because there won't be a king. But then chapter 5, verse 2, we see the promise that Matthew points to. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. But notice this. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So not only is there a king who's coming who will rule, but his coming forth is from days of old. He is divine, in other words. So this is a prophecy that is clear-cut. Obviously, a king is coming. He will come into Bethlehem, and, and he will be the king, and he will rule, but his coming is from of old. There's some interesting stuff in here that Matthew's kind of connecting to the last one, that he is God. But also... In this context, in Matthew chapter 1, we have a storyline. I mean, this is a big part of this story where men are coming from the east and Herod and the Jews are sitting there and, and they're understanding now is the time. Everybody's kind of coming to this understanding. There's a star that has appeared. And why is that significant or where that star idea come from? Maybe Numbers 24, but we're not going to get into that. Don't have enough time for that. But... How do they respond to this news? A king has come. Well, notice, the men from the east come to worship the king, while all the Jews are troubled and confused about what's going on here. So Matthew's kind of revealing the king is here, and the Jews are not really understanding or accepting, but here are Gentiles coming to worship him. Well, that's interesting in the genealogy, if you remember, he brings up all these Gentiles who are, who are making horrible mistakes or sinners, but they, they come into God's kingdom and they become a part of God's plan. So the Jewish reader, if you were a Jewish reader and you were reading through this story, the Micah text might not stand out to you as much as this, this story of men from the east coming to worship him and the Jews are against him. Like, whoa, what's going on here? And Matthew's kind of setting everything up. For this whole book, right? It's all about revealing to the Jews the Gentiles are in and helping everyone to understand that. So, so 
I think that's more so the point of this second prophecy. Let's go to the third prophecy. Uh, this is verse 13 through 15. We see that the wise men had brought the gifts and then they departed. And then Joseph is warned in a dream to, to flee to Egypt. And then we have this phrase, Out of Egypt I called my son. Okay. Well, this is a text in Hosea. So, again, find with me uh, the, the minor prophet Hosea, right after Daniel, uh, is Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And notice this text. Verse 1 beginning, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. When we read this, we know this is not a, a Messiah text, right? Uh, when Israel was a child, I loved them. This is talking about Israel before the Exodus. They're, they're in Egypt, and God out of Egypt called them. God saved them. The Exodus happened. And he's recounting that. And he says, the more they were called, the more they went away. He's, he's clearly talking about Israel. Why is Matthew using this text and saying, obviously, this was to fulfill that? Why is he pointing here? Well, when we look at the greater context of Hosea, what we find is that the first four chapters, the prophet Hosea is an illustration. God has loved Israel as Hosea has loved Gomer, his wife, the prostitute. That's who, that's who Gomer is. God gives us a picture in this prophet's life of how he has loved Israel by letting his prophet marry a prostitute who then has children that are not his. He actually says, not my, not my people is one of their names. Imagine that uh, being your child's name, not my son. Uh, yeah, that's not good. Uh, but all of these names that he gives them, and, and, and she's unfaithful to him, and so he puts her away. But then eventually he buys her back. And then... Chapter 5 through 10, we see God condemning Israel like the sin of Gomer, saying, you broke my heart. Like Gomer has broken Hosea's heart. You've broken my heart. And now we see in chapter 11, verse 1, the beginning of a beautiful song that, that spans through the rest of the book. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And they, they were always rebelling against me, but I was always with them. I was always kind to them. I was always lifting them up. I was always helping them. And they again have returned to the land of Egypt. They've returned to captivity. And he says in verse 5, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their kings. The picture of, again, you're going to be in captivity. In this case, it was actually Babylon. But verse 8, he says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? 
How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. And then he says, God's people will come to him trembling. They will return. There will be a new uh, exodus that will happen as he again saves his people from their captivity. And that picture is given to us throughout the rest of this storyline that there's another exodus that's about to happen. But this exodus is going to be greater than the exodus of old. Look with me at chapter 13, verse 14. He says, I shall ransom them... From the power of Sheol. Sheol is the grave. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Does that sound familiar? It sounds like 1 Corinthians. There's a deliverance that's being talked about here. A new exodus is being talked about here. A salvation from the captivity that we're all going to be enslaved in. Death. So... Think about that, the greater context of Exodus, that God is going to again save His people. And now go back with me at Matthew. This is really, really cool. Look with me back at Matthew. Notice, notice what Matthew is trying to tell us in this text. Joseph has a dream. Does that sound familiar? Joseph has a dream. And because of the dream, he has to escape to Egypt. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) He ends up escaping to Egypt. And he saves Jesus. He brings Jesus with him down into Egypt. And then Jesus is in Egypt, but he's called out, just like Hosea mentioned. That exodus happens. We see how this is kind of resembling the story of the Old Testament. Matthew, if you're a Jewish reader and you know the Old Testament, and you're reading all this, you're like, wait a second, there's something else here. There's something deeper. And it's going to get better as we continue. We kind of see that, that Moses is kind of brought up a little bit later, but he's, he's bringing this up to show Jesus experienced exile in Egypt. Jesus went into the land of captivity with His people. He went through what His people went through so that He could now be called out of it. And deliver Israel from their captivity. How's he going to do that? Well, he's going to die. And then he's going to be delivered from death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Matthew's already pointing to this. He's, He's giving this idea. For those who dig deeper, for those who want to understand, there's an understanding here that Jesus is coming to bring the exodus. He is the rescuer that Israel's been looking for from all the captivity of sin and death. You continue and you see this, this, this image is just, this storyline is just continuing to explode with Old Testament understanding. In the next text, we see Herod, the evil king, killing those two and under. Does that sound like Pharaoh? I mean, that's, that's what that sounds like. It's kind of interesting. And the, the women in Bethlehem are weeping, but notice he brings up Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no, no more. Ramah is as much north of Jerusalem as Bethlehem is south. But Ramah is not the same place as Jerusalem, or as, as Bethlehem. 
So why does he say a voice was heard in Ramah? As you're reading through that, it's like this was to fulfill what Jeremiah spoke. A voice is heard in Ramah? Well, the prophet should have said a voice is heard in Bethlehem, right? I mean, to have the direct. But he brings up Jeremiah. Remember Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? Uh, the one who was a prophet during the time of the, the, the captivity was going on. Nebuchadnezzar's coming in and, and carrying off uh, thousands of Israelites and murdering thousands of Israelites. Well, on their way out, they're stopping in Ramah, and Jeremiah himself is being carried out. And he, they're seeing all this murder that's going on and, and carrying away that's going on. And they're weeping over this horrible captivity that they're going through. And Jeremiah is writing about it all and revealing it all throughout his prophecy. But notice he uses Jeremiah 31.15. Turn with me to Jeremiah. It's a little bigger book. should be a little easier to find. Jeremiah 31, verse 15. This is a text that talks about the captivity, the suffering that, that Israel's going through. But notice... The context. It's in the midst of great promises. If you were looking from chapter 30 all the way through chapter 33, you would just be highlighting redemption, salvation, uh, glory of God's people, the, the salvation that's happening throughout this whole section. Look with me at verse 13. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Verse 15 says, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation, bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping. And your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work. The surrounding texts show us that God is giving promises to remove the tears and the suffering that are brought about by the people's sins. They've sinned greatly, and they are now being punished greatly, and dealing with great suffering and weeping and lamentation. But here, God is saying that suffering is about to be brought to an end. There's a Messiah that's coming that's bringing about great comfort in the lives of those who trust in Him. So God is going to turn their weeping into rejoicing, into gladness. And, and so Matthew uses this text to help them understand the promises that were made in Jeremiah, the promises of a new king, the promises of a new covenant, the promises of a new relationship, and being reestablished as God's people, they're all coming true in the life of Jesus. Well, why does Matthew use this text? Well, it's obvious, right? The people are still suffering for the sins that they've committed. They're still suffering, living in a, in a world full of evil people and evil rulers. But there's hope and there's comfort for God's people. The king will return, just as Jeremiah prophesied. The weeping will be over and the sorrow will be turned to joy. All right, let's, let's look at the last prophecy. 
The last prophecy, we see that Herod dies and Joseph is returning to Jerusalem. And the text there in verse 20 says, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. That's actually almost a direct quote of Exodus 4, 19, when Moses is told, Go back to Egypt for those who sought your life are dead. But in this case, Jesus is the one who is returning. So again, Exodus happening as throughout Moses... But the, the, the prophecy he points to is, is interesting because it doesn't make any sense at first. They go to live in the city called Nazareth. And it's to fulfill what the prophets, notice the plurality, has spoken. He shall be called a Nazarene. Well, this word is not found in the Old Testament. You're not going to find Nazareth being talked about. You're not going to find Nazarene being talked about. Uh, at all in the Old Testament. Uh, why? Because Nazareth is kind of a newer town, and it's this little small podunk town that nobody really is, has paid any attention to. So why is he called a Nazarene? Some people think, well, it's because he's a Nazarite. Well, no, he doesn't take the Nazarite vow. He doesn't abstain like Nazarites do. Uh, in fact, those words sound alike in English, but they don't sound alike in the other languages, and they're not derived from each other. So why is it that he's fulfilling this by being called a Nazarene? Why would Matthew say this and use this as his proof? Um, sorry. Well, think for a second about what it means to be a Nazarene in the New Testament, in the first century. If you were a Nazarene, how were you thought of? Think about the words of Nathaniel that was mentioned at Alan's funeral. Uh, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, this is the way people viewed Nazareth. This is, a, this is nowhere. This is, this is a nothing town. There's nothing there. If I were to tell you I'm from Union Hill, Alabama, does anybody know where Union Hill is? Nobody knows where that is. From a dirt, dirt road in Union Hill, Alabama, nobody knows. Went to Brewer High School. Hardly anybody would know where that is or what that's about. And that is the message that, that Matthew is pointing to as he says this. The word branch or shoot is netzer, and it's more closely related. And it's the idea of a little bitty twig coming up out of the stump. And that's actually throughout the prophets, this little bitty twig coming up out of the stump that nobody thinks anything about. But over and over again in the prophets, what we see is that the one who is coming will be despised and rejected. He will be humble and he will be lowly and no one will think anything of him because he's a nobody from nowhere. No one will pay any attention to him. And Matthew says, Jesus came and fulfilled this prophecy. Well, we're going to think more about this in just a second, but let's kind of review all of this before we do. What's the point of this whole section? Why is Matthew going through these events? I appreciate your patience. Going through all those texts is not easy, but I appreciate your patience. Why is he doing all this? Well, he's revealing to us the nature of our king. Think about this. Our king is God who has lived among us and shown us God is with us. God is helping us overcome the enemies. He is the king of all the nations of the earth. All the nations will come and serve him and glorify him. And even his own people may reject him, but nations will come and they will rejoice at his coming. He's the great rescuer, the one who saves us from sin and death and brings about the ultimate exodus. He's the comforter for all those who are mourning, as he'll talk about in the Sermon on the Mount in a few months or weeks or however long it takes us to get there. But also, 
He's the hope of mankind that was promised by the prophets. And He is a nobody from nowhere. That's a message for the Jews to take in. A nobody from nowhere. If you were a Jew, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to, he's going to be the best Jew. He's going to be the best at everything. And, and He's going to be notable. And, and everybody's going to think so much of Him because He's so great. He's so wonderful. And He's, he's just fulfilling all righteousness. And He's just going to take over. And, and so all the Jews are trying to be that guy. Trying to be up there so they can be ready for that guy to come. But notice the God who created heavens and earth came down to earth and look at the beginning of his life. I mean, imagine that as a a two-year-old, a three-year-old, moving around like that, living like that, and then eventually coming to settle in Nazareth of all places. You're the God of all creation and you're living in Nazareth. Why would you do that? Why would you give up heaven and earth to come to a little bitty town to be a nobody, to struggle to survive in poverty? Why would you do that? Because that's the kind of God we serve. We serve a God who is lowly and humble and wanting to serve us and love us and show us the way that we can live a holy, a godly life for Him. Look with me at one more text, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of the, uh, in full accord and of one mind, do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, what an example we have in him. That he's willing to just come into the lowest means possible. That he's willing to be a little child that's vulnerable and and having to have others care for him. I mean, the the people who need the most care are babies and and the elderly. And he became the baby who needed someone to fulfill his every need. He couldn't do it himself. Why? To give us the example that, that we need to empty ourselves and become like children and that we need to serve other people. That we need to have humility about ourselves. I mean, all of us are trying to persuade other people that we're greater than they are, or that we're better than, than, than people might think we are. That's what we do. And here comes the God of all creation saying, I'm not better. I'm here to serve and showing love. So the question is, are we going to follow the wise men and worship this king? Are we going to receive the grace and the mercy that he came down from heaven to offer us? 
And are we going to transform our minds and our hearts to be servants of God and to be servants of one another? God has done great things to show us His power, His wisdom, and His love. How are we going to respond to that? If there's anybody here this morning that needs to make the change in your life and you know what you need to do, please make that change now. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.